Welcome to episode number 39 of the Librarian's Guide to Teaching podcast. I'm Jessica. And I'm Amanda. And on today's episode, we are talking to librarians April Hines, Catherine Voss, and Megan Hoyer about their discipline-specific version of the ACRL framework focused uh, towards the journalism discipline. And it's based on research that they've done uh, with some committee colleagues with practicing journalists and students. Uh, but before we get started with our conversation, how are you going? How are you doing? Anything exciting happening this week, maybe? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, so after 12 years of being an academic librarian, I am starting a new chapter and I am becoming the executive director um, of the local public library right in the town that I live in. It's obviously a huge change. Um, but the opportunity presented itself and I just honestly I don't think I would have taken it if it was any other town, because I think it's such a unique opportunity to, you know, contribute to the community that you live in. And you know, as you guys know, I have small children, so I'm going to be able to have an impact on the community that my kids are going to grow up in so I'm super excited about that and obviously I've never worked a day in my life in a public library, but I'm so excited that there's going to be such a wider audience and so many different opportunities for um, people for me to work with in the community, um, you know, the, the, the residents of my town. It's, it's exciting, but it's very scary. Like, I really always thought I'd be a lifer for academia, which is really interesting because when I first, my first library job was as an archivist. Um, and I was like, I'm never going to be that snooty, valuty academic librarian. And then I ended up loving being an academic librarian. And now, you know, I'm, I'm moving on and it's sad, but it's also very exciting. Um, so yeah, by the time this episode airs, I will have be, been in this position for a month. So um, I'm sure I'll have many fails to share and many <laughs> different stories from Jessica to share. Um, and, you know, some of you might be thinking, well, what does this mean for the podcast? Um, it doesn't mean anything. We will continue um, as we are. Um, like my triumphs and my fails will look a little different. But, um, you know, I think one of the reasons I was hired is because of my unique experience with programming and programming at its heart is instruction. So um, that'll be a big push and a big focus on what I'm going to be doing once I, you know, step into my role as the executive director. And interestingly enough, as I was looking at, um, you know, just stuff about public libraries, there is no set of standards for information literacy for public libraries. They have it for, um, you know, higher ed. They have it for K to 12. Um, I think those are like the 21st century skills, but nothing for public library. So I think I'm going to be bringing a lot of interesting and unique perspectives of, of how to measure some of the programs that we do um, and the instruction that we provide. Yep, you are going to take public libraries by storm. <laughs> I hope so. Uh, public library and shift, here I come. Oh my gosh, it's so exciting. Um, I'm really interested in, uh, in how everything's going to go and I'm so excited for you for a new chapter. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, but I'm always going to have my foot in the door in yep. higher ed. I mean, especially with this podcast, you know, the, the topics that we talk about are still going to be related to higher ed because obviously you're still in it. 
And, you know, my 12 years of experience don't just get erased. So, you know, I still have many stories to share, many ideas to share that belong in the academic space. So I don't want our listeners to worry, um, but I think this will be a nice, unique perspective and hopefully we'll bring on some more uh, public library um, listeners on as well. Right, definitely. So what's going on with you? Well, definitely nothing that exciting, thank goodness. <laughs> We're just in finals week, so um, it's slowing down with students reaching out for help and chat and stuff like that. So um, I'm starting to shift to the more solo work like LibGuides and um, starting to write out my responsibilities and projects and how things are going to get handled while I'm away on maternity leave in, in the summer, um, which thank goodness it'll be a quiet time anyway. But, you know, I'm on teams and committees and stuff, so things need to get taken care of. Um, and then once I'm done with that, just kind of taking some time to read some of the ILL books that have been on my desk for a few months on like information literacy, on inclusion, teaching for justice. Actually, I think that's one of the titles of the books, not just the topic. <laughs> yeah. So just trying to get to all that stuff that just sits there for when you're busy, you're like, oh, I'll get to it. Well, now I'm finally going to get to it. So it feels kind of good to be able to kind of wrap things up before, um, before I go out for a couple of months. So that's exciting. Yeah, yeah, definitely. All right, so let's start with our uh, conversation with our guests today. So I'll just introduce them a bit. April Hines is the journalism and mass communications librarian for the University of Florida, George A. Smathers Libraries. Her research areas include library marketing and outreach and social media engagement. Uh, April has participated on several grant projects and is a co-author of the book Collaborating with Strangers, Facilitating Workshops in Libraries, Classes, and Nonprofits, published by the American Library Association. Catherine Boss is the librarian for journalism, media, culture, and communication at New York University. Her research focuses on the challenges of archiving born digital news content and pedagogies in library instruction. Uh, she has served as co-chair of the uh, Association of College and Research Libraries Communication Study Com Studies Committee and hold a holds a bachelor's in journalism from Grand Valley State University, a master's in library and information science from Long Island University, uh, and a master's in media studies from the New School. And Megan Hoyer is the head of information literacy and communication arts librarian at um, Southern Methodist University, where she leads a team of librarians in integrating synchronous and asynchronous information literacy instruction into the curriculum. Uh, she chairs the Communication Studies Committee for the ACRL Education and Behavioral Sciences section. Uh, her research interests are workplace information literacy and news literacy instruction. So welcome to the podcast and thank you all for joining us. Thank you. So, uh, I had seen the presentation of your paper called um, Reporting in the Post-Truth Era, Uncovering the Research Behaviors of Journalism Students, Practitioners, and Faculty at uh, ACRL 2019. And I was really interested in the framing of the journalist behavior into the context of the ACRL framework. Uh, and we all know how important it is to, in our you know, information landscape right now, for not only journalists, but also students and the general public to have some of these investigative skills. Um, so we wanted to chat with you all about journalism instruction and some of the projects that you now have related to this topic. So just to get us started, um, how did you all connect to do the original study and paper and how has that evolved into what you're doing now? 
Well, it's a it's a pretty interesting story how we all came together. Um, when I first started my library career as a journalism librarian, I joined the communication studies committee um, under the um, education and behavioral sciences section of ACRL. And my first meeting, the um, previous chair, Joyce Garginski, I think I'm saying her last name right, she said, well, we have some, some good news. We finally finished the, journal, the latest edition of the journalism standards for information literacy. Um, if some of you may remember that before the framework, there used to be discipline-specific standards, um, and journalism had them as well. And she said, we just finished the latest edition. We're, we're all ready to promote them to our faculty and then get them out in a big way. But now there's this new thing called the ACRL framework <laughs> for information literacy. And now we kind of have to figure out how we could adapt these standards to the new framework. So it started out um, very um, simply and it has kind of evolved over time. So. The first thing we did is we thought, well, why don't we reach out to journalism librarians, um, news librarians that work in newsrooms, and ask them for you know, what they think journalist stuck places are when they're looking for information. You know, where do they get stuck in their information seeking process? And um, we collected those pretty informally on listservs or in Facebook groups. Um, and then um, we mapped those to the framework. And that's sort of where, where the project was when uh, Katie and I took over as co-chairs. I don't even remember what year, <laughs> what year that was. 2016, um, I think. 2016? I think so. Okay. So when we took over as co-chairs, we had that as a starting point. And then Katie was the one we have to give her credit because she said, you know, this is a great starting point, but I really think we need to do a more rigorous study. And we're not going to be able to really map this to the framework and talk about dispositions and knowledge practices until we really talk to journalism students, journalism faculty, and then actual journalists in the field and, and interview them about their, their research process, how do they find information, how do they interpret it. And um, we ended up interviewing over 50 journalists, <laughs> but we had a large committee. We had a committee of over 10 people. So we divided it up. Um, we had really great representation from, you know, people who lived in large urban areas to people who lived in rural areas. So we had a good mix of newsrooms that we pulled from. And we um, developed questions that mapped to the six frames. And um, then we, once we completed all our interviews and we did all the coding, we mapped the responses to the framework. Um, then we took those responses and we coded them based on what we as librarians viewed as novice behaviors all mm -hmm. the way up to, to expert behaviors uh, so that we were able to identify this is what an expert information seeking habit is and this is what a novice habit is and how do we get them from novice to expert. Um, so we did all that research and you saw our presentation at ACRL and we're continuing to sort through all that research. Um, but then uh, Megan took over as chair um, after Katie and I, um, we did five plus years on that yeah. committee. I think we did six. <laughs> wow. They made us leave. They're like, you yeah, have to they, go. They had to force us to leave. We had to ask for an, an extra year because we really wanted to finish what we had started. Um, so when Megan took over as um, chair of that committee, she took all that research that we did and turned it into what you see now, which is the new framework 
for um, information literacy for journalists. So I don't know, Megan, if you want to talk more about that. Yeah, and I was, I guess I was the newbie. <laughs> I was like first coming in when Katie and April were co-chairs. And so I kind of get to see hope to the final last, you know, nth degree of this, <laughs> like I'm here at the end. Um, and, and taking, being a part of the research and then seeing it and turning it into a document has been really interesting. And we did have a few committee um, members who have been able to bridge that gap, but we did hit a point where we like, we have got to get this document done because we're losing institutional memory. At this point, we're gonna have enough people cycling through that um, we just need to, to finish this thing out. Um, and, and that's been a really interesting process. I can say we could not have written that document without the research. Um, and I, I think it's the research under that that makes it such a such a usable, robust um, tool. Um, but there were, we had lots of conversations around it, talking with journalism faculty a bit more, um, and the conversations as a committee um, were, were really interesting. And I really enjoyed um, kind of that process of being able to turn that into an actual framework document. I'm going to um, clarify the, because you have other um, people who are on your paper, right? It, were they also committee members? Because you mentioned having like robust representation from different institutions. So those people were other committee members? Yes. yes. Yeah. Okay. Had, cool. um, everyone on the paper was a committee member. And um, that's kind of how we all found each other and connected. And, you know, we never could have done this level of research without that many people. I mean, 50 interviews to do the interviews, to code them, to analyze them. And right. we're, we're still working on <laughs> We're still producing products from this research. So um, you, you had to have a big team like that. Yeah, yeah. it, it was like, absolutely crucial because um, when there were 10 of us doing the interviews, mm -hmm. you know, it, it wasn't such a big burden on any particular uh, committee member. And, and there's been so many brains looking at this and then even all the new committee members that came in and looked at the research and wrote the document. There's just, it's been informed by many people and I think that it speaks to its strength. Yeah, it's much stronger, I think, for that reason. And I remember actually when Megan joined the committee and you were so important in shaping the method of this research, mm -hmm. um, which, which I am forever grateful for. And we spent, we spent a year I am a little embarrassed to say, <laughs> trying to figure out what uh, a good method would be to gather this information on people's actual research behaviors. Um, and we started with like a survey, we were thinking about content analysis and Megan's, Megan and Shemaine Tucker, another one of our committee um, members suggested interviews. And I think that was also another crucial aspect of the success of this research um, as we see it. Um, was that we were able to have, like, we were able to uncover information and it was exploratory research and um, the interview method really, really brought that out. Mm. Yeah, totally a team effort, geez. <laughs> that's, that's such a great uh, background of, of how this evolved and how much work is really involved in putting something like this together. So, um, you know, in the intro to the framework, you write that the authors considered the following factors to develop a document that can be relevant to the wide range of journalist tasks. Journalism resides at an intersection of multiple literacies, such as data, visual, civic, and media. 
Can you explain a bit more of why journalism is such a natural fit to the ACRL framework? So um, I guess I'll take this one. It, it's interesting. It is a great fit to the framework and it also isn't a great fit mm -hmm. to the framework. And like, uh, I, I think in thinking about where it's not a great fit is that, I mean, we know that information literacy is highly contextual and the framework is really written within an academic context, um, the kind of information in, in and, and the sign of that really is the scholarship as conversation frame is really very academic in nature. And so when we were kind of trying to think about, well, how could this translate to journalism? If you at first blush, it seems like, well, uh, do journalism, you know, people in practicing in journalism, do they understand scholarship and how information is created in scholarship. Um, and, and that certainly is important, but we really took a step back with that frame and considered um, whether journalists themselves are creating new knowledge um, and, and whether that act of creation is participatory, like a conversation. And really in thinking through that, we decided that yes, in fact, they are creating new knowledge um, and it's a different way of creating it and it's different than scholarship. And so that's why you'll see in, in the framework document that we changed scholarship as conversation to news as conversation. Mm -hmm. And so it's really the idea that news is highly, you know, creating news is highly participatory. Um, they are, creating understanding and then there's different perspectives that go into it that we don't always know what's happening it's very complicated so it's it was really interesting to think about that idea that um, you know scholarship is not the only way that people create new understanding and there are other ways of of doing that and so we just kind of took that idea and and ran with it for that particular frame so in that way it's like it really we had to have lots of conversations about that and really think through that we hit a, a moment of like whoa wait a minute <laughs> we've got to really take a step back and um think about what this means but but certainly the the rest of the frames really do gel with the act of journalism and um you're kind of talking about this and you know journalism is is sort of like this extreme information literacy i mean you have you are on a deadline you are doing this so quickly you are on the cusp of technology at all points um some of the interesting things that came out of talking with journalists was the kind of interesting and creative ways they were taking um, new technologies and leveraging those in order to um find out what the story was in order to reach potential sources um in order to like use social media in a new creative way i mean they they are really on the cusp of all of this um kind of thing so uh, it, it's such a and as we said in the introduction it's that intersection with you know media literacy and digital literacy and information literacy if you are not digitally literate as a modern journalist it's it's hard to be a journalist without that yeah, I, I would add that um, as Megan was saying, it's it's the framework is is so scholarly and intellectually kind of grounded, and journalism is such a practitioner based field. So it I think I think the reasons that Megan was just saying about why it wasn't 
necessarily a good fit because it was a it was a difficult fit in some ways um, that made it so important to have this framework for this discipline. And we hope that it'll be really, really helpful to communications librarians and journalism librarians because like we did spend, I don't know how many months we had a series, we had a, a list of semi-structured interview questions. And it was when we were drafting those questions, we were trying to think of like, what are we going to ask journalists about the research behavior related to like this frame of scholarship as conversation? And that's where we really had to stop and think, well, like what question is going to draw this out? Um, and, and just discuss like what, what is what a scholarship as conversation mean in a journalism context? Yeah, it was it was really fascinating research. Uh, I really, I really liked seeing what came out of each frame and I was often so surprised by one how expert so many of the students were um, mm -hmm. in our interviews like they exhibited many 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 expert behaviors and it was wonderful to see and, and then two just the different ways that the their research behaviors would fit in um, to the framework like information creation as process it was so interesting to see uh, and to hear the students talk about how they know that public records are created through this transparent process. Um, and so they're very important. Their professors are telling them all the time, public records, these are so important for journalism, but they couldn't really, um, they couldn't articulate why. They kind of struggled to articulate why. Whereas the professors, this was a threshold concept. They knew exactly why. They've fo they filed Freedom in of Information Act requests before, right? They knew that the, the way that this information is created had to be transparent because it's the law. But journalism students struggled with that. They knew that public records were important, but they couldn't really articulate why. And so that was a threshold concept that really kind of arose from these interviews. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I like how you mentioned, you know, both, both of you mentioned that looking at the frames in a different way through that practitioner lens. I mean, I don't specifically work with journalism students. I mostly work with like first and second year students, but even thinking about journalism and the information creation process in a new way through the fact, like Megan said, that they use technologies in special ways and that are they creating new knowledge? Like, I think I could even use those ideas to come up with ways to talk about information with first year English students. So I think it, it could be valuable for any, um, any librarian to kind of look at a discipline in a different way. So I think that's really great. Yeah, and I think that one, frame that fits perfectly with journalists journalists is um, information has value. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Nobody gets how much information has value than journalists. Right. One, because they're constantly um, having to track down difficult information, information that's behind paywalls that they don't have access to, or information that hasn't been digitized or made accessible. Um, and on the other hand, they feel very strongly that the information that they create as professionals should be paid for. You know, mm -hmm. they think that people should subscribe to their local newspaper, that it shouldn't be freely available on the web, that you shouldn't, you know, just you know, people get frustrated by paywalls, but journalists mm -hmm. feel strongly that they're there for a reason. So, um, you know, when you talk about the frame, information has value. And I think if you do it through the lens of how a journalist would see that, I think it, it might actually make more sense for students. Yeah, that's a really interesting discussion. I like that. 
So uh, how do you foresee the framework being used by instruction librarians? Uh, are there opportunities for using this new document to help librarians maybe begin collaborations with journalism faculty or other discipline faculty? Um, yeah, so we hope that this will be very useful to instruction librarians, in particular um, communication and journalism librarians, but also um, all kinds of folks uh, doing news literacy instruction, um, but we'll talk about that more in a little bit. Um, but I can speak to this because I started using this research and like the findings immediately in my instruction. It was just so helpful. It just like sh shined a light on, on where students had been struggling on, on like what I was just glossing over or not even thinking about that they uh, were stuck on or confused about or um, hesitant about. Um, and I folded it in immediately uh, in, in a number of different ways, um, primarily, I use it to design learning outcomes for all of my instruction. I use it to scaffold my instruction across, like I see the journalism students in my program about three times as undergrads and usually about twice for the graduate program. Um, so I'll focus on uh, some threshold concepts and some dispositions that are uh, a little bit more intuitive for them, like the information has value um, in, t in times when I see them very quickly. You know, like the first time that I meet them and I just talk to them for about half an hour and then I give them kind of um, a tutorial that they take asynchronously. Uh, then I talk about something like that and things that they struggled with more like information creation as process. Uh, I, I talk about when I have a little bit more time. Um, so, and with faculty, uh, I think that this framework, with, it's still a draft. <laughs> We're in the midst of publishing it right now. Um, but I think this will be very valuable as something that I can now link to when I discuss the learning outcomes that I'm designing with faculty. Because I often have these conversations with faculty when I'm teaching in a new class or when we're working on sort of a new um, learning object together. And I do that a lot. You know, we collaborate on like um, tutorials and quizzes and um, things like that, homework essentially for the students. Um, I'll, I'll be able to, I, I think maybe they're not so interested in knowing all about my process, but it's just a nice thing for me to have to link to when I say, oh, I think this learning outcome will work really well here. You know that searching is strategic. So we're not just gonna look at LexisNexis. <laughs> you know, I'm not just gonna demo LexisNexis and then now you click here and then you do this. Um, I have different ways of showing like, okay, let's all try search. And now let's try let's try a strategic search and let's see the difference in the results, et cetera. Yeah, and I would say in addition to um, using the framework document for, for learning outcomes, which I mean, I personally also will see it as being so, so helpful. Um, it, we, we added a section in the appendix called strategies for assessment. And, um, you know, we, we considered the document to have uh, three potential audiences, journalism librarians, um, librarians who are maybe working with the field of journalism or working around aspects of journalism that maybe aren't very familiar um, with journalism itself, and then also journalism faculty. And, and so in writing that section on strategies for assessment, we took the mind of um, 
you know, we are all at this point very familiar with the idea of threshold concepts and what that means and start to think about ideas about assessment. But if we start with square zero with journalism faculty who maybe aren't aware of that, it was just written from that point of view and, and really starting with, okay, how do we think about these things? How might we start to think about assessing um, dispositions and the difficulty of that? Um, there are sections in there talking about, um, you know, what to think at a programmatic level and about accreditation. Um, so for people who are having to work with journalism and maybe aren't familiar that it can be educational in that way. But one of the big messages in the um, section for on assessment is really that if we're talking about assessing threshold concepts um, from the, this framework, that is really the work of librarians and faculty together. Um, there is really not a way in, you know, a 60 minute session or a 50 minute session um, to really fully understand that. And so there's, there's recommendations in there around the kind of things librarians can contribute in that work, um, namely working with faculty and developing, you know, long, longer term assessment at the programmatic level, thinking, um, you know, and, and how to design assignments around the idea of how can we actually make the learning explicit. Um, one of the things that, uh, that I see a lot um, is a real focus on the student's product and making sure that the product that they're producing is good, but really information literacy is a process, not a product. And, and so how do you make the learning explicit? And there's recommendations in there around the things to think about for um, working with faculty around assignment design and how, how you might go about making these um, ideas ex um, learning explicit. Wow, that sounds really helpful. Um, I'm so jealous. I wish I had opportunities <laughs> to kind of implement that. You know, assessing the framework has been something that we've always struggled with um, at our institution. Um, so to have those examples, that's I'm sure our colleagues are going to be very grateful for those examples. Hopefully they um, try and implement some of them. So our final question um, is, again, just kind of keeping it more practical. Um, what are some practical ways that general instruction librarians, you know, non-journalism liaisons, those that deal with a lot of first-year students or those that are limited to one-shot sessions can incorporate these journalism knowledge practices and dispositions into their instruction? I think I can take this one. I actually think this framework can be really useful for general instruction librarians um, teaching a first year um, writing class, for example, um, especially if you're doing a lesson on media literacy or news literacy or talking about, um, you know, different formats of information and comparing them, because I think a big factor that contributes to mistrust of journalism is many people don't understand the process behind what good journalism looks like. Right. And by listing out these knowledge practices, this is a way for us to shine a light on what does good journalism look like? Um, what is that information seeking process kind of behind the scenes that makes um, quality a quality product? So you're getting students beyond just well, this is a good source versus this is a bad source, or I'm going to look at the New York Times because it has a good reputation. And but really looking at on the article level, 
does this article um, distribute the qualities of expert um, information-seeking behaviors? Um, for example, um, if, if you have an article that says, you know, uh, um, studies show and they don't actually link to any studies or interview any experts or, um, you know, according to, and, you know, according to who, <laughs> you know, who is, who is this, this expert or, you know, it's, there, there are different, definitely warning signs um, that students can be trained to look for when um, they're looking at media from the perspective of, is this quality journalism? And I think that gets skipped over a lot. You know, we're always teaching students how to do fact-checking and verification, but we never really talk about, you know, what, what should have happened? <laughs> what was the, the process behind the scenes? Um, you know, and are they, is there an article that talks about a marginalized community but doesn't actually interview anybody from that community? You know, mm -hmm. there's all, there, if you look at the knowledge practices, um, some of them could be easily translated um, or placed into a lesson on news or media literacy and show um, kind of any student on what to look for when they're evaluating journalism. And I know that um, when I teach a, like a first year writing course, because I, I am a journalism librarian, but I do um, teach classes for um, students outside of journalism as well. Um, and I know that we talk a lot about, you know, information creation as process, what goes into creating a journal article versus a news article versus like a, a popular magazine article. And I think bringing in some of those knowledge practices and training students to think about from the perspective of the journalist, what should have gone into the creation of this product, what's missing, <laughs> what's missing, or um, what, what is really showing expert behavior. Um, an, an example I always give is um, there was a USA Today article where they pulled content from all of these yearbooks from the across the country to find examples of, of blackface. And they never once said, where did they get these yearbooks from? <laughs> they didn't credit the libraries and the archives, it digitized and made these accessible or available. There was no linking back to the original source. Um, so to me, I can look at that and say, mm, that's not, that wasn't the best choice, even if it's- That's a novice behavior. <laughs> That's a novice behavior. That's a novice behavior. <laughs> Even though it's published in a newspaper that has a good reputation. So I think that's sort of taking it to the next level of media literacy, if, if that makes sense. And yeah, I think that's you can jump in if I missed anything. Go ahead, Megan. I think to add to what April is saying, it's it's understanding for helping students understand things at an article level, but it's also um, thinking about information as an ecosystem and looking at another kind of ecosystem, like beyond scholarship, um, and, and seeing you know how news stories interplay with each other, um, the role of the news in amplifying messages, um, thinking about how different perspectives shape how you understand um, the news, and and that gets at themes that I teach a lot in. In media liter and in media news literacy um, instruction, and and certainly, I think the framework is really helpful in that work as well. Yeah, I think it's perfect timing for for a framework like this that everyone can use. I mean, because we know that lots of librarians are moving away from the the traditional checklist method of evaluation, and 
as Megan said, talking about the ecosystem, talking about media and journalism in, in a less uh, binary, good, bad way, right? Like the New York Times is great, but they can have a real crappy article. <laughs> so you need to be evaluating that individual information and not just, you know, okay, New York Times, check mark, we're good to go. Um, so I think it's a great time for librarians to start using a framework like this. Yeah, and and we're hoping because there is this uh, crisis in public trust in journalism right now that is really damaging to our democracy and our society and like civil life. Um, we are hoping that research like this that kind of pulls back the curtain on how journalism, quality journalism is produced uh, will help to alleviate that crisis, will help to increase public trust in journalism. So that's a plug to go teach uh, news literacy. <laughs> Yeah, actually, did you, guys see, uh, did you guys see the new report from the American Press Institute about um, it's a new way of looking at trust in the media? Do Americans share journalism's core values? I have it saved in my bookmarks, but it just reminded me of that talking to you guys today. <laughs> oh, no, that's so interesting. Yeah, I'll pick that out. I'll put it in the show notes, too, but <laughs> definitely you guys should Google it soon. <laughs> I would just add that um, Megan has really pulled this like uh, that committee through um it was a huge lift for them to take this research and turn it into a framework um for information literacy and journalism during a pandemic <laughs> the whole time it was during a pandemic and um megan i'm just so grateful to you for carrying on the torch and seeing this research through um and i think it just turned out fantastic Oh, well, thank you. Great. Thank you so much for joining us. And thank you so much for this important work that you guys have been doing with your committee. It's fascinating. And we were so thrilled to finally have you on the show. Thank, thank you so you. much for having us. This was wonderful. Yeah, this was fun. Okay, that was a great conversation with the three of them. Yeah, I'm looking forward to um diving more into that framework and incorporating it a little bit into some of the media and news literacy that I do. Yeah, I, I loved their practical examples of how you could use it with non-journalism students. I think they're so easy to integrate. Um, hopefully, you know, our audience will get a chance to kind of implement that in the classroom. I think it'll just, it gives students a different way to look at news um, and journalism. So um, let's talk about, um, a triumph, a fail, or a recommendation. What do you have for us this week? So I have a recommendation for a um, recording of a webinar. Um, I had put this in, I believe I had put it in the show notes um, for a previous episode, but I wanted to shout it out now that I've actually um, watched it and participated in the webinar because it hadn't happened yet when I put it in the previous notes. Um, it's called Hitting the Service Ceiling, the Prohibitive Cost of Professional Development in Academic Librarianship and why we aren't presenting at ACRL 2021. <laughs> so it is um, a group of academic librarians who are kind of calling attention to the fact that there is uh, what they're calling a service ceiling and how uh, librarians at many different institutions are, some of them are actually like paying for their own promotion and tenure through the high cost of professional development. Um, but even for staff librarians like myself, I mean, it's incredibly prohibitive, especially now in the past year with the pandemic um, to have to participate uh, in these professional development opportunities. 
um, or you don't participate and you don't get to have a voice. Um, and there's a lot of inequity um, in the process. So their uh, webinar kind of brings attention to all of these uh, different issues. And they had a survey that they did in 2020 of um, academic librarians, which they they talk about all of their research um, and things like that. So I'm gonna put that information in the show notes. And I think it was also kind of a good connection to our last episode with uh, Alyssa Valenti, where we kind of talked about professional development post pandemic. And uh, so this is kind of a nice um, tie into that. Very interesting. I'm definitely gonna check that out for sure. So I have a recommendation, which also ties back to an episode. Uh, my recommendation is um, if you are interested in um, integrating humor into your instruction or even into your workplace, uh, consider listening to the uh, podcast episode from the Next Big Idea Club. Uh, the episode is titled Humor, How to Turn Levity into Your Secret Weapon. Um, and it was such a great episode. And it was lengthy but it was it was good I listened to it from beginning to end and it basically talked about how to use humor in different situations um and you know in our in one of our episodes which is still our one of our most most listened to episodes about humor and instruction um the two authors of the book talked to the podcast um person um and talked to him about how they use humor in their instruction and um, even in the workplace. Um, this woman was um, sharing a story that she was a stand-up comedian on the weekends, um, but then during the week she worked a nine to five office job and she was making a presentation and she was very stiff about it. She was nervous and her boss was not paying attention. And then she added a little bit of sassy humor to it and it clicked and he just paid attention for the rest of the presentation. And from that point on, he knew her name. He always talked to her. It was just a small little, you know, thing that she said. Um, and it, it just lightened the whole mood. Wow. That's so interesting. And so yeah. the, the episode was about, about the book. Uh, yeah, so so this whole podcast, what they do is they have a, an author um, and they interview them and they give like three big ideas that come from their book. So um, that's cool. Yeah, yeah. So these these two authors um, talked about three ideas uh, related to humor and levity, and they offered some practical tips uh, tips to people who um, want to be a little more funnier in their life or integrate humor um, in a practical way. So it might seem silly, some of the, the things that they ask you to do. Um, but basically, one of the biggest um, things that they say is think about your life situations and try and be funny, like think about them in a different way. And like that ends up you like being funny without trying so hard. I think it's one of those questions of like, can you teach someone to be funny? <laughs> you know what? That's Maybe one of their people you can. That's one of their big ideas. And their answer is yes, you can teach someone to be funny. Good. Good, yeah. good. Yeah. So definitely check it out, especially if you're still looking to integrate humor into your instruction or even in your workplace environment. Cool. Yeah, that sounds interesting. Mm -hmm. So that wraps up another episode of the Librarian's Guide to Teaching. Uh, here's where you can find us. You can find the podcast at librarian underscore guide. You can find Jessica at librarygeek611. 
You can find me, Amanda, at HistoryBuff820. And you can always email us at infolitteachingpodcast at gmail.com. Be sure to rate and subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen. We would love to hear from you in the reviews as well.